0: I'm Erin Hessey, the Connections Coordinator here at High Point Church, and I'm here with Senior Pastor Nick Gibson, and today we're going to be playing for you an interview that we had with our Executive, or our Director of Outreach and Service, uh, Mike Beresford, and he, and Nick, and I spoke just about some of the processes that he's been going through as he's been working at High Point, and the roles that he's had, and what he will be having in the future, and we just want to clarify uh, some of the terminology that we use in that discussion. And so, Nick, would you explain, you know, when we were talking when we talk about leading from the second chair, um, that Mike might be doing that, what would that look like? Especially in light of our uh, pastor, Lloyd Biddle, who's also here. H- how that dynamic plays um, between them and you and what that looks like here on staff.
1: Yeah, so um, Lloyd is our senior associate pastor. And if Mike becomes a pastor, it's possible he could become our executive pastor. And those two roles are both kind of second chair roles, but they're kind of different second chair roles. The senior associate pastor tends to be the second chair in terms of the second chair theologian in the organization and the second chair teacher and preacher in the organization. Whereas the executive pastor is an executive. Essentially, they do leadership functions of running, helping to run the stuff that happens at the church and to lead it as an organization. And so, in that sense, they're both second chair. One is the second chair leader. The other is the second chair teacher and theologian. And so, that there can be some division of labor, but it kind of means that there's sort of two second chairs. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we think of the church as a whole, as a functioning organism, and we think in terms of its organizational function, um, the executive pastor, in that sense, is the second chair. And that's the context of the interview that we did it with Mike.
0: Got it. Yeah. Awesome. So... I uh, hope you enjoy and um, catch you next time. This is Aaron Hessey with the High Point Church Engage and Equip podcast. And I'm here today with Pastor Nick Gibson and Mike Beresford. And we are going to talk a little bit about some of the movement that High Point Church is making from a, a staffing standpoint, pastoral standpoint. So Nick, will you explain for us a little bit what that might look like for us?
1: Sure. About almost a year ago now, um, Mike Beresford came on our staff as our service and outreach director. Um, Mike has something like 30 years of pastoral experience. And um, the plan when he came on staff was he was going to do like a bivocational kind of thing in terms of ministry. He's going to do a bunch of ministry like at the Capitol. Um, He's going to do some workplace ministry with businesses and business leaders and stuff like that and kind of build and do some church consulting. And then he was going to do about half time for us in terms of like leadership and that kind of area. But the more he was here, the more he saw how our church was. The more he met our folks. The more he got involved in Madison. The more he, and the more we needed him full time, frankly, for the first several yeah. months. The more he kind of felt like he could still pursue some of his other things, but he really wanted to be here full time. And then the more he was here full time, the more it made sense. He started doing sort of pastoral tasks. And then pretty soon we had what started to look like a director who was really functioning as a pastor. And let me. I want to just say here at the beginning of the interview. That was not the conversation we had before he came here. Hmm. And both of us believe, and I think the elders believe, that we we really had full integrity in the plan we had before he came. But what we also found out, both of us in our ministry lives, is that you can make all kinds of plans, (laughs) and then you still end up rolling with the punches, so to speak. So um, we're in this situation that our Constitution never really um, anticipated of trying to bring a director to becoming a pastor. So what happened, the first step was that the congregation voted to open a position which we have to do in our constitution. Mm-hmm. Then the constitution says I appoint a search committee and then the congregation voted that I should appoint a search committee that focused on Mike instead of doing a big national search and is he competent and qualified to be an associate pastor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I appointed one. The elders accepted it. They met with him three times. They called references. He didn't give them. They did all that work. Mm-hmm. They gave a quite substantive report to the elder board. The elder board voted in favor. They, um they, Uh, said they thought Mike would be great. That was their sort of recommendation. Yes. The elders voted to say yes too. So now it goes to this, what we call a candidating process and then a congregational vote. So this interview is sort of part of that. Okay. It's uh, allowing people to enter into kind of the interview process a little bit. And hear Mike answer some of these questions themselves so they can begin to make a decision about how they want to vote to have him become pastor or stay in this position as director.
0: Awesome. Does that make sense? Yeah. Great.
1: So we're just going to ask you questions, Mike. And Sounds good. Brilliant answers. Yes. (laughs) So why don't you give people like a short snippet, like family coming to Christ, dropping into ministry? Because, of course, that is so simple.
3: So I grew up in a Christian home. My grandfather was a pastor. Uh, My mom ended up uh, in ministry, in pastoral care. For many years, but all of my growing up years worked in Sunday school and various things because that's what our family did. And so um, there were many times I understood um, that I was a Christian, but the more I learned about Jesus, the more I surrendered to him and grew in him. went to um, a Bible school in Kirkland, Washington, that's where I met Estelle and we, uh, we're engaged. We've been married now 39 years. got two daughters, Jocelyn, who's 35 this week, and Chelsea, who's 32. <laughs> Chelsea's in Asheville, North Carolina. Jocelyn's back in Seattle. And we're enjoying living in Madison. Um, our ministry has taken us um, in a variety of places, um, mostly in Seattle area the first 10, 12 years, um, Estol did a lot in church music. I was started out as a children's pastor, and then my second uh, appointment was an executive pastor. Is was a pretty young person to do that. And then uh, we put a church back together for the Vineyard Denomination in Missouri, and from there we were invited to join the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, where I was privileged to be part of a small team that developed new ministry. Around the world and hand them off to other ministries, um, if they didn't serve the, the specific mission of BGEA. From there, God decided I needed a rest. I wanted to go to a city and keep moving at the pace I was, but God knew better. It took me a little while to understand that. He gave me an opportunity to rest in Western Colorado, and about six years ago is when I met Nick. He had been here two and a half months. I was doing a conference on crisis intervention and he was brought to it by Gene Collins and we met during lunch and talked and continued that conversation quarterly or so over the next six years and Nick was out at our house um, a few times. I was here in Madison a few times and we built a respect for each other's ministry and when it came time for Estelle and I to wrestle with what we were going to do next um, after resting in Colorado and bringing that church to where we felt God would have us bring it. Um, I wanted to get back to the city because I think the cities are the crossroads of where the gospel is dealt with most effectively. And Nick said, come here.
1: Yeah, just to clarify, resting in Colorado (laughs) <laughs> what that means is you were the senior pastor of a church in the valley um, on the western side of the Rockies in right New Hope Rifle.
3: Right. It was in uh, Newcastle. Newcastle, Colorado. It was a church of about 125 people when we got there. We left the church about 350, got them a new building, and um, put some marketplace things together in town. But it was also just an environment, a resort environment, um, where... Rest was valued and it was somewhat Recreation forced to value. do that yeah. and learn the value of, of rest.
0: So how did you know you said you reached a point where the Lord was leading you out of that time of rest? How did? What was the experience or time that you had that led you from knowing that that's where you should be to, to working in a city?
3: I've always been in cities and like I said, I think the cities are the crossroads of, of really the gospel and culture where it can have the most effect. Um, this assignment to a church, I felt was done in that it was it was up, it was healthier, there were people coming to Christ, um, they had a name in the valley as a healthy church and um, and there were some things that happened in the church that weren't I always use this term. There's a a righteous restlessness that God puts into place when He's moving you that causes (laughs) you to look out and to other places. But it also came down to culture. It wasn't my Mm -hmm. culture. And that was part of the issue I wanted to do more. And there were people that wanted it to be like their church that it was before I got there. And some of the control issues. And I think that the church is meant to grow, it's meant to be healthy, healthy relationships produce children, mm-hmm. and that um, there was more, and that there was another pastor in the church that was uh, very capable of leading and was present, and when I left, he stepped up, and, and Eddie's doing a great job at the church. Mm-hmm.
1: Sweet. Um, One of the practices you've had um, all along the way that I've known you is it seems like you try to pastor a pastor every week. That like just about once a week you'll have lunch or you'll get together with you did that in Newcastle. Mm -hmm. Um, You kind of had that ministry when you were doing the crisis counseling thing with Mm -hmm. Billy Graham. And then here you've met with like Marcio and other pastors just to see how they're doing and how's it going. Can you say a little bit about that, how you kind of got into the pastoring pastors, counseling pastors kind of work?
3: It actually started much younger, I think, because I had two tremendous mentors, and Dr. Roselle and and Dr. Jerry Cook, and I saw them do that. When I worked for Billy Graham, the primary ministry that um, Jack and Chad and I developed was the rapid response team and that was going into crisis settings and sending, uh, trained chaplains into crisis settings. And when we went into those, we often worked with the local pastors. And I think that's really where I saw the openness in pastors and the hurt that they often carried, but didn't show outside of their home or their office. And because we were in and out, we were safe people. And because I grew up around pastors, um, and was privileged to, to have those two great men as mentors, I became aware of the need for parent or for pastors to have a safe place to open their hearts and to talk about their failures without getting fired for it. And, and I just came to love pastors. And then as I, um, trained in the various cities across the United States, usually 30 cities a year, that put me in direct contact with a major pastor because we use the larger churches and towns, cities, uh, for a weekend. So I would be with a pastor for a Friday evening, Saturday morning at breakfast, Saturday evening, often in their pulpit on Sunday, Sunday dinner. And they began to open up and there was often follow-up phone calls with them. And so I just developed um, a sense and, and I guess grew into part of what I sense is my calling to be that, uh, sounding board for pastors wherever I'm at. Somewhere along the line, I, I did pick up the practice of meeting with a pastor and a business person every week, not always from the church I was at. And, and that's proved helpful in giving me a broad sense of what's happening at the church at large, as well as the struggles that people in business, um, have in our culture as they try to walk out their faith okay
0: so you mentioned that um you know when you helped out with this the crisis what was it called with billy graham the rapid response team. rapid response team so um what you did there was helping something you're helping people go from unhealthy or needing help um to healthier you know and a better more stable place you did that with churches. You've done that with churches in the past, and so I'm sure there are people who hear that, who attend High Point, and think, "Well, aren't we already a healthy church? Like, what? Why is Mike Beresford here? What does he need to help a church if we're already healthy?" So, what would you say in response to that? Um, where do you, where do you see that we might need help? Where, um, is that the attitude that you have coming in? Because um, that would be that was a thought that I had when I was like, "Oh, he's the common. He's the fixer. He's going to come in." fix us. And I don't even know what the problems are.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I think a healthy church is a reproducing church. And it's also one that is said in Matthew about Jesus. He had compassion on the people and his compassion led him to action. And as followers of Jesus, then we emulate Jesus. And so we have to have a concern, not only for the body, and we should have that concern. We should love one another. We should protect one another. We should make sure that we're secure um, in our fellowship here within the body. Mm-hmm. But then there's also a responsibility to carry out the Great Commission as Jesus instructed and modeled. Mm-hmm. And in that, it means we have to leave the security of this building and that family and go into the marketplace, to go into our neighborhoods and still be the same caring, loving people that Jesus has called us and equipped us to be. Mm -hmm. And at High Point, it's a great gathering place, and there's um, a great group of people who do care and and serve, but for some reason it doesn't seem like, and I know there are instances of this, where that serving has always translated into people knowing Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it's easy, I think, especially in a suburban setting to allocate that to a specific group or to missions, to give to it rather than participate in it Mm -hmm. um, personally. And so one of the things that uh, Nick and I have spent a lot of time talking about is, you know, how does a church grow and a church can grow too fast in that we're not called to make converts, we're called to make disciples. And so how do we equip the body to not only share their faith, but then have enough uh, understanding about their own faith and about God's word and how it interacts with their own life so that they can share that with somebody. So it's not just bringing somebody to know Jesus, but it's bringing somebody to really know and understand who he is as their savior and Lord and and daily companion and friend and savior. So I think we have, I think that's the area that we can work in where we all see that we have a responsibility and a, a privilege of, um, being about the work of Jesus.
1: Yeah, I said I said a number of times to, to the de not the deacons the elders that part of the purpose of you being here was <clears throat> to be the evangelism gadfly, so to speak, the sort of person who's going to be who's going to say, this is great, it's great, we've got all these ministries, that's that's great. Um, is anybody coming to Jesus? Mm-hmm. How is this working? Why does something that feels so rich end up being spiritually so sterile? Mm-hmm. What's going on? And I think that it's very easy for us, it's very easy as a church to be really content with mm-hmm. feeling like we're doing all the right things and saying, hey, faithfulness is what we're supposed to be called to, so let's not be too concerned about what we feel like we're achieving. Um, in fact, I think we, we had an argument about this in um, one of the ministry groups at the staff groups about if you do evangelism, yep. will people come to Jesus? Mm-hmm. And there was this the one side that's kind of like, well, some people are like, Jeremiah, and God calls them and he basically says, no, he's going to listen to you and you're a big failure in that sense. But he was faithful to proclaim the gospel to everybody. Mm-hmm. And then, but then Jesus, in a very specific passage in John 4, says, look at that field, right? He says, it's, it, the old translation, this is white for harvest, pray that there'll be workers. And the assumption for Jesus is the problem with the situation is not that there isn't enough wheat the problem with the situation is there isn't enough gatherers. Mm-hmm. And that was specifically focused on people going, his, his disciples then going and sharing the gospel and realizing that the the harvest is actually bigger than the people going. Mm-hmm. And it, it's possible to get too legalistic about that, but it's also possible to come up with pious explanations for a very direct statement by Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so... We need to be not too smart by half and be like, well, we're doing everything right, we're proclaiming the gospel, we're just being faithful. Maybe we're like Jeremiah and maybe this Madisonian culture is just too pagan by far. And part of the the role of senior leadership at a church like this is to not believe that. And so one of the things I was looking for in somebody doing Mike's kind of role is somebody who just absolutely would not accept the idea that Madison is too, quote, too far gone for large numbers of people to come to know Jesus.
3: And there are several reasons why I love Madison. Um, the reason before that is why it came to High Point, and that's I believe in, in Nick, in his tenacity with God's Word and the Gospel. And that it's, uh, to quote him, we're part of something bigger. And that part of something bigger isn't just a network of churches, but it's the community we live in as well. And Madison, I've lived on both coast and Madison may be liberal for the Midwest, (laughs) but it's not necessarily liberal compared to the coast. Um, and it's, I can't figure out if it's a big town or a small city. It has a lot of wonderful qualities that are town like, Mm -hmm. And it has the amenities and expectations of a city all rolled into one. And so it's a very comfortable place. The other thing, because it's not so big, um, we can actually make a difference for the kingdom here that's visible. And when it's Mm -hmm. visible, it's more likely to ignite. Um, If we were doing the same quantity of work in Chicagoland or New York, it would be a spit in the bucket and nobody would notice. But one of the things that we have here is the opportunity to actually come together with the other churches and nonprofits that are gospel-oriented and businesses that are gospel-oriented and create something that is joined together for the good of the kingdom and be heard, Mm -hmm. be seen. And I think that's a unique thing about Madison. I also think, as uh, Henry Sanders said, who's grew up here, a wonderful brother in Christ who's been involved in politics and in various things around Madison, he's never seen Madison as poised for the gospel as it is right now. And that there are a number of things happening that God is allowing to happen simultaneously to bring about um something that's greater than what we've experienced in this town yet.
0: Yeah, What are some of those things that you're seeing already?
3: Um, A more openness amongst pastors to do things together. A willingness to share some resources. Um, For instance, High Point um, assisted in the salary of a pastor on the east side in a church that served the African-American community so that he could do a better job of that. And there was no, nothing that came back to high point for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blackhawk has done similar things. Um, Door Creek is invested in several things that will have no real growth gains for themselves. When churches begin to look into their community and give you create this wonderful phenomena where people can say, the church did something good for me, period, yeah. without wanting something back. What we want for them is what's good for them, and that's that they would know the freedom of Christ. But first, it seems like we have to undo some of the things that we've done historically so that they believe that we actually do love them. Yeah. Um, Eighteen schools in this city have been adopted by churches. That's fairly uncommon or unexpected in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And there are other churches looking at adopting other schools. July 23rd, there's a a faith-based group uh, throwing a block party for the neighborhood around Leopold Elementary, which happens to be the elementary that holds the greatest disparity between reading and math between black and white students, grades Mm -hmm. 3 and 4. They're doing it to show people, show a neighborhood that it's not just about the reading or math, it's about the people, and that there are people that generally want to love them. Mm-hmm. There are business people who are coming together asking, how do we pastor our employees in such a way that is good for them? And the reality is also there, you take care of your employees, it affects your bottom line, but they're not doing it because of the bottom line, they're doing it because the Bible tells them to... Be kind. Mm-hmm. The Bible tells them to care for one another. The Bible tells them to do these things, and so they're putting them into practice in their businesses, and it's making a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick and I are just launching Bible studies in the Capitol, and there's a group of people who are very excited about that because it's been something people have been praying for but not realized. But there's an openness now. Mm-hmm. And we met Monday for the first time in uh, one of the hearing rooms. And there was a genuine excitement about those that were gathered. And there's not a lot of people in the Capitol right now because it's time to get people reelected. But at the same time, um, there's a new beginning, and it's something that's unique.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> Mike, one of the things that um, one, of, one of the things that people have heard is the possibility of us having a staff system that utilizes an executive pastor. And I think for some people that just feels like this like rank and sort of industrialized thing to just corporatize and slay the spiritual lifeblood of a church. You know, like <laughs> it just feels like the church is gonna become less organic, less a spiritual, vital body, and more this kind of like organized, administrated. Thing. and so why and and literally in God's name, <laughs> would we consider, even consider moving to a staffing system that utilizes something called an executive pastor? What is an executive pastor? and why is that not a horrific abomination, but instead something that we really need and that God will use to help us accomplish our vision?
3: When a church grows numerically and in strength, um, it becomes bigger. And when it becomes bigger, there are more things to track, more things to do, more people to equip and to train and to release, and then kind of know what they're doing out there so that there can be some kind of uh, coordination, so that there can be encouragement, and And all of that needs to kind of happen in the same way and, um, direction so that we know that we're accomplishing the mission that God called us to. When that happens, just like when a business grows, we're not a business, we're a a ministry, we're a family business, Mm -hmm. if you will. It becomes too much for just the lead and many people aren't aware of, um, how much time you, Nick, spend in sermon preparation for one. Just the one thing that most of them would say they come to each week. That's not something um, that's put together in an hour. There's a lot of reading. There's a lot of research. There's writing. There's praying. There's a variety of things that go into that. Napping, for example. Napping. (laughs) And and the hours spent um, come out of that work week as the staff gets a little bit larger and there's training and equipping and making sure that their lives are spiritually um, growing and the stresses of the job aren't uh, competing with their creativity and ability to uh, produce and get things done. Um, that all can't come out of one office. And so about 10, 15 years ago, um, There was the thought, just as businesses do, to where you have a CEO, a COO, a CFO. There's a reason that those things happened. People with certain giftings looked after the finances, looked after operations, looked after the executive decisions and direction of a company. Um, Order is not um, in conflict with God. He is a God of order. Mm -hmm. He is a God that, when we look out our windows, we see the sun come up every day at a certain time. We see the moon come up in its right times. We see the grass grow. We see the water come down. We see all this thing called order, and it produces beauty. And an office, whether it's a church office or a business office, can, if it's not organized, if there's not cohesiveness in direction, Mm -hmm. becomes chaotic. In an effort to to bring that order and to really keep things moving um, across the board, from children's to congregational care to missions to um, small groups, a variety of things all moving the same direction needs leadership. And so, the executive pastor position is one I've heard it said is a leader from the second chair, and to where. The senior pastor, so Nick in this case, would be uh, able to give his time to teaching, preaching, and vision. And really, what's God have? Where's God taking us? And then really preparing his heart, um, the Word, and giving overall direction and vision. But then the nuts and bolts of accomplishing that vision come to the executive pastor so that there's continuity among staff uh, in mission in language in how we communicate a lot of various things that uh, go on in a church that many people don't necessarily think about Mm -hmm. Um, just like the business world while we're not a business we have personnel we have payroll we have HR we have facility we have uh, ministry descriptions we have volunteers to be loved and trained and equipped and released and checked up on and see how they're going we have various ministry groups all well, in the same vein so
1: there's two follow-up questions i think that people might ask and i'm trying to ask the most combative ones possible because people have a hard <laughs> time asking these like in an open forum when like sure. you're a candidate There's just two questions people ask one is how, won't this lead to a stronger consolidation of sort of a staff-dominated church, where the real, the you know the 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 member, the attender who wants to serve Jesus and find a place where they can do meaningful ministry, is going to get pushed out? So that we're going to get professional, like Sunday school teachers, and we're getting these, you know, professionalized like things, and so everything at the church is going to feel the volunteer slots are going to be more and more specialized and you can only do kind of like one thing and the staff are going to direct everything and it could be a mental picture that people don't find inspiring. And the second question would be something like this. Um, Nick seems to like to read books and talk about ideas and Mike seems to be this kind of like hard charger kind of fellow and isn't this just going to become like Mike the Shadow King? Like... Ultimately Mike's gonna push on this stuff and Mike's gonna lead this stuff and like maybe Nick will stay as like one as the preacher guy, but like how is that really gonna work with Mike and Nick, given Mike's personality and Nick's if we like Nick as the senior pastor?
3: You're right, you asked the combative ones first. <laughs> so I think in Ephesians I don't think I know that in Ephesians four eleven and twelve, it gives the offices, but then it gives the purpose for those offices, and that's to equip the church to do the equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. I don't believe that a staff heavy church is necessarily the most biblical church because we're taking away the opportunity to do what God's gifted us to do, and that's the work of the ministry. Um I don't see the staff's role is to do ministry, it's to support ministry of the saints, and, and believe it or not that takes coordination because the natural thing to do is to take charge. It's easier to do it than it is to tell somebody else how to do it and watch them fail and come alongside them and re-equip them and release them and then get finally to applaud their success. But that really is what the church is about. It's what the family is about. We teach our kids. We give them room to fail. We give them room to try out things. And pretty soon they become adults. And they launch out on their own and they're successful. The church is much like that. Um,
1: But there's there's a certain way in which, like in a family or a very small context, there's kind of this discipleship of necessity where, like, These things kind of like naturally happen because there's like there's nobody else to wash the dishes. Like the first time you live alone, and let's say your mom did dishes your whole life, all of a sudden, the laundry just doesn't automatically get done, and the (laughs) dishes don't automatically get washed, and dinner doesn't automatically get made, and then you realize you must do these things, and so people do them. They take personal responsibility. As a church gets larger and it gets a competent staff it seems like the entor- entropy would be away from that, it would be to a service-based model where you pay this small fee we call giving, and then it pays for this structure of staff, and then they, the professionals do the work, which is part of all of American culture. Right? Mm-hmm. All of American culture has been moving yeah. away from a volunteer, organic, family-based, and civic-based society to a more professionalized, specialized You only do one thing and you pay everybody else to do other things kind of society. And so so what you're saying is, basically, as the church grows and as we get something called an executive pastor, we're going to do the opposite thing the culture is doing while we're using a similar structure that they're using. Is that the most combative way to ask that possible?
3: And the most accurate way to (laughs) state the answer. Yes, we're going to do the opposite because we're called to be healthy and we have guidelines in God's word that we need to follow if we're going to prosper. Um, take evangelism, for instance, a lot of churches have an evangelism team. That's great, but pretty soon everybody knows we have an evangelism team. And so they stop doing evangelism because that's the job of the evangelism team. Rather than that, what if the entire church were equipped through all ministries to share their faith, to take responsibility for loving each other And for loving the non-Christian, which is the greatest way you can love a non-Christian is to give them the truth in such a manner that it's believable and and wearable and they step into the family. That takes coordination. Um, We could build a kingdom, but we already have a kingdom. It's God's kingdom. So we have to function and and live under the rule and the, the ways that God has put down that describe a healthy church that means that we're going to get better at equipping and training people not doing the work of the ministry but equipping and training them and showing them the benefits of them doing it so that it becomes naturally part of the rhythms of their lives
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i think that the rhythm language is important to emphasize because it can what it can sound like is Oh no no we're gonna we're gonna have you know people who are not professional ministry people do this work there's gonna be lots of it and they're gonna get do lots of work and it, all of a sudden it sounds like oh now it sounds even worse right because sometimes <laughs> churches will have these big ministries that require tons of volunteers yeah. and it becomes this like a ministry structure environment driven ministry and people are like oh gosh that sounds really difficult and it sounds like the last thing I'm gonna do is talk to my actual physical neighbor. And so when we've talked about this about how we don't want to have more programs than are in environments that are absolutely necessary mm-hmm. than to help equip people to do ministry in the rhythms of life as decentralized as possible. I mean mm-hmm. in their neighborhoods around the people who are their neighbors and so on. Because that's where the non-Christians are. That's where the people who need to hear about Jesus are. That's where there is one of the largest growth opportunities because doing ministry to non-Christians is a lot more difficult than to doing it to people who are already agree with what you're about to tell them.
3: So I just had a conversation with Trish Pinka about baby blessing. <clears throat> baby blessing, if you don't know, is a something at High Point has done for a number of years, where once a year all of the moms who have had babies come in to a party that's in their honor and other older moms get to meet them. They get to meet each other. The babies are taken care of, so the new moms get a break. But our conversation was, let's do that, but let's structure it in such a way that we set up a model. And then we have a website that launches at the same time that says, okay, one of the things that's been lost in our culture is that of hospitality. And so if you love your neighbor and you love babies, then watch for women who are having a baby and throw them a shower and here's some helps. Here's some things you can do. Here's some ways you can bless them. Um, Take and learn from this experience, but don't let it just be an event. Let it be a model that you can learn from and we'll help you then go and do the same to your friends, your coworkers. um, We have the Elizabeth house in town. We have allied drive. We have, other places where people can go and bless people in a very tangible, practical way around the birth of a baby and celebrate life. It's easy to talk about the gospel when you're talking about celebrating life, but also give them things that would help them. Uh, Give them the complete book of baby care. That's a faith-based book that talks about God's goodness in creation and how wonderfully he made us, but also helps you understand how to take care of colic. And do some of those practical things to where a mom, if she's got that book in her hand in the middle of the night, trying to figure out why her baby's crying, can remember that those Christians gave me this. And they did something good to me. They shared God's love, and I need that right now. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of it would be easy to put on an event that would maybe be more spectacular than just an event but to put it on in such a way that it also is a training piece in a launching piece so that others can go and say, okay, now I can do this in my apartment complex. I can do this to those in my workplace. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of helping every department in the church understand that what we do has ripple effects out just in the things we enjoy. Who doesn't like a baby and celebrating a baby. Mm -hmm. Um, I've used this example before, you know, a lot of people take their kids to sports um, practices and games and everybody's sitting on the sideline cheering. That's a wonderful opportunity because you're there already to say, hi, I'm Mike. What's your name? Mm -hmm. Who's your child? Uh, Where do you live? Find something out about them and begin to in the very rhythm that you're doing, following kids to their sports games, uh, you're probably going to offer pizza after the game and do those things, and invite those people along with, and start mm-hmm. to build relationships where you can be an influence for good.
1: Yeah, I think <clears throat> so. For example, so let me pull an example out of that that you're kind of teaching that a listener might not see. One of the things you're, you're implicitly teaching there is: so if I'm teaching you evangelism, instead of trying to recruit you for an evangelism team, I am going to teach you about the discipline of availability. It that, is. for example, you have to you have to actually substructure the subroutines of your the rhythm of your life, not to have not to figure out how to get to another church meeting, but to go to your kids' games and interact with that, recognizing that evangelism requires, you actually do have to go to the Culver's thing after the game, <laughs> and you actually yeah. have to do talk to the parent, and you actually have to, go and put your seat over by, the other kids' parents.
3: But the beauty in that is. Once you do it, it turns from a have-to to to a get-to. Because we find out that there are so many people that just want somebody to talk to them and want to engage in a conversation where politically or publicly they may hide behind a certain value or ideology. But when it comes down to being my neighbor, they want to have a conversation. Um, The other day, Estelle and I were just getting out of the truck and a couple came down walking their dog and we didn't go in the house for an hour. They don't live too far from us. They have a dog that's similar to one of ours and they had seen the dogs and just something over the dog. We got this conversation going and it really is being available and recognizing that this is a get to, this is what we are privileged to do as Christians is to be light and salt in the world.
1: Mm -hmm. So what about the uh, leadership question?
3: So is MB going to be the shadow king? Um, I do like to get things done. But my favorite experience was one evening, and it was in a bigger context. I was standing next to the stage of an event that I had put together. But I wasn't on platform. And I was watching people come to Jesus. And it was incredible to know that I had been a part of something much bigger than I was, that I had orchestrated that didn't have Mike on the platform and Jesus was getting the honor and the glory and people's lives were getting changed. That's what really drives me. Um, but I'm not afraid to do the hard work of getting that event done so that he can get the glory. But in that, like I've, our previous conversation, the more that, people are involved in their gifts, in putting that together, the more they move from being a renter to an owner in a a specific ministry, um, an event, whatever it may be, you see the joy on their faces. And when something is organized, it's easier to move around. It's easier to find your own space in it because there's clarity. And and that's how I see part of the position of a exec pastor is to help bring clarity into what the various mission uh, ministries are doing so that people can get involved in the areas that God's gifted them in so that they can participate in a fuller way. Um, I like to lead, but I like to lead in a manner in its I'm not always successful in it. Um, I like to lead in a manner that allows that person to flourish. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example of when I wasn't successful in it. And it has to do with the staff here at High Point. Um, My first six months trying to find out what was going on and who's who and how people function and such. Hannah Savage brought me a book called Quiet. And she said, you need to read this chapter. And she had it marked and everything. And. She leaves my office. So I open up the chapter and it's on the myth of the charismatic leader. And so I read it and it's about how introverts like to be led. Honestly, I had never really looked at that topic because as an extrovert, everybody should be one. (laughs) (laughs) And um, the book talked about just the efficiency rates of introverts when led like they want to be led by an extrovert. Mm -hmm. It goes up 22%. Conversely, when they're led as an extrovert would lead, their efficiency rates go down 22%. That's a 44% swing in production. That's huge. Mm -hmm. That really got my attention. And once it got my attention, God got my conviction (laughs) You know, I, I really sensed that God was speaking to me in this. And I had to change how I listened. I had to change um, in participation. And several of the staff came to me in the ensuing months and said, Thank you, including Hannah, uh, for not only reading it, but for changing to lead us in a way that was beneficial for us. Mm-hmm. And and that's important because while not everybody's a leader, we all need leadership, including myself. And and that brings order, that brings direction, that brings mission—not uh, only capacity, but the ability to um, to achieve that mission.
0: Mm-hmm. So what I what I've been hearing you saying is um, generally the executive pastor role. It can be perceived as the person like. The shadow king, the person behind the scenes who's, act, who's actually or ordained the, over everything. The puppet mess. Yes. <laughs> doing it, yes. Doing all of it. Um, but what I hear you saying, and also what I have experienced just having you been the director of outreach and service for the last year or so. Nine um, Nine months is, nine months, is um, rather than you taking ownership over people, relationships, ministries, you've been there to draw bridges for people and to make, help people see the connections that can be made rather than being the one doing the necess- necessarily being the one connecting or being that connection
3: you want to run my campaign
0: no thanks <laughs> I'm, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah i mean
1: one of the things i heard is i was thinking of it in like a sort of a older naval metaphor that like you don't necessarily have to set the course to love running the ship right mm-hmm. there was this there used to be the first mate the first mate was like basically in charge of running the whole ship. All of us, who eats when and what flat, you know what sales are going up and who's at this and who's doing that. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge part of getting from A to B. Mm-hmm. But there was a certain amount of like executive decisions and like making sure the course stuff was done right and whatever. The captain was absolutely in charge of. It. And I think, I think one I mean, Mike didn't say anything about like wanting to set the course and right. be able to determine the A to B line. Mm-hmm. But the fact that nobody gets from A to B just because they drew a line on a piece of paper. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. And so putting feet on stuff is helpful. And so it, it's important for him to be able to like get behind what we set as a vision together. But one of the things that people sometimes don't totally understand is I go through the vision process fairly collegially. And I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of the church functioning on the basis of my vision. Because I think I could die tomorrow. The church should have a vision that is its vision. Mm -hmm. And so it has to be persuasive and collegial and built together. So even when it comes to like, can you really get behind the senior pastor's vision? That's actually not even what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for us as a church to figure out a vision. that I'm influential and persuasive in that process. Mm -hmm. We agree Mm -hmm. on it together. And then all of us play a role to try to achieve that vision. Mm -hmm. And so I think within that context, um, it's sometimes it's good to have some division of labor, even at the top, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm.
3: Another way to look at it might be, and I actually made this mistake in ministry, not that many years ago in viewing people as pawns to accomplish ministry. And the Lord dealt with me fairly severely with that one. and I have the ability to to see the vision on paper and what needs to happen, but rather than see that as people as pawns um, redirect it to build a structure so that when people come along that have their gifts and abilities and passion for different things, there's a good place for them to plug those gifts into and function so that they can then realize the the fruit of their labor Mm
1: -hmm. do you feel like part of that because i remember i I think a lot of people in ministry who have who think like leaders instead of as shepherds who are like Mm -hmm. i want to build something i want to see something happen that there is this point where they go from sort of despising the shepherd person and going like i'm this leader guy i'm gonna accomplish this vision. And it's focused on the object of the people who are going to be brought in. And so the people in the church already are pawns. Yeah. And then there's actually a transition where you actually look at the people in the church as your great desire is for them to experience mm-hmm. what it feels like in the experience of doing ministry and seeing those people come in so that it becomes the people coming in become is really important. But part of what your joy is, is not just seeing the person come in. You get just as much joy from that person being involved in helping bring the other person in. Yes. And growing so that the, the, the people who were sort of pawns in your eyes in that sort of arrogant season become... You take an enormous amount of joy in them becoming and experiencing so that they become an end in themselves too.
3: So- mm-hmm. Absolutely. And in one of the functions of an executive pastor in that role is to make sure organizationally there's room for them. And, and that gives a lot of ownership back to the church. It's not top down. It's, if anything, it's reversed. And so the top is supporting from a leadership serving role and we can create the places for ministry to happen, but we can't create the ministry that comes from the saints as they do the work of the ministry, but we can create those environments where they can do the work that God's
0: called and gifted them to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned earlier um, there's a difference between um, as an executive pastor or on a church staff. This is what I would like you to clarify. Um, Doing ministry versus supporting the ministry of the saints. Is this kind of what you're talking about? Mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah, explain that a little bit more.
3: So obviously we all do ministry. But when you get a church that has a professional staff doing all the ministry, the church becomes a spectator. Mm -hmm. And that's not biblical. You can't support that from Scripture. Mm -hmm. What you can't support is when, when the staff leads the church and equips and releases them into ministry so that you don't just have a faith healer You have a congregation of people that pray for healing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not about one person. It's not about the pastor. You have a lot of people who are pastoral, caring for people. It's not about just the visionary. It's about a lot of people catching a glimpse of what God's doing and then coming alongside that. It's not about just those who want to do the -the behind-the-scenes work. There's a lot of people now taking care of whether it's uh, simple things like providing rides for people to church, uh, taking care of the, the grounds around the church, making sure that things are clean, that there are construction paper in the thing for the teachers on Sunday morning, that there's a lot of various jobs that need to come together, but all that needs some place for it to happen, some place mm-hmm. that's orderly so that they know um, how to obtain those things, how to get those things, where training can happen. Um, so their gifts can can flourish um, so yes we all do ministry as pastors as church staff mm-hmm. but when that becomes greater emphasis than the body um, realizing that they're called to love one another, care for one another, teach, admonish, encourage all the things that scripture says it's out of balance. We got to keep it in balance. Yes, you need leadership, but that leadership should allow the church to flourish. Mm-hmm.
1: Great. What about um, the issue of of dealing with growth? So let's say things went well and people came to faith and whatever. And I, um, th- what then? Like, what happens when there's two full services and there's maybe attendances, a thousand or eleven 1, hundred? Um, how do we? How do we? One of the things you said in an interview with the the search committee was, I really believe that High Point Church can impact t- maybe twenty percent of the population of Madison or Dane County. And like, what does that look like? What does that mean for you? What does that look like? What, what is, how does that happen?
3: I think we think it means that it all has to be right here in that. How are we going to get 20% of Dane County in this building? We're not. Um, But many of the people of High Point um, in their work life, in their neighborhoods are people of influence. And when we can take our faith and fully integrate it into our lives 24/7, and become those influencers, people are going to come to faith. And and in that, I, I use the word influence. Um, they may end up actually going to other churches. I hope that we have the opportunity and the need to plant churches to take care of uh, the nourishing needs of those new new people. Uh, We're going to need more pastors, we're going to need more staff, we're going to need a variety of things to do that. Um, I was visiting with a business owner this last week, two different ones. Um, One oversees 950 employees and they're looking at how can we accomplish the spiritual needs of our people here at work. Another has 15 employees and they're asking the same question. Um, one of their employees came to Christ. Um, Gee, isn't that supposed to happen in church? No, it's supposed to happen wherever light and salt are. And so how do we influence them? Well, we can help those business owners um, with the tools that they need now to disciple those people, um, with the understandings they need to talk to those people who are their employees, how to care for them, how to uh, better meet their needs so that their employees have less sick days, have less uh, turnover. It costs a business a lot of money to retrain. How do we encourage them to love their people and put people over profit? That also positions them to receive God's blessing because part of God's... um, command to us is to love one another is to take care is to be that light on the hill is to do those things and when we do what he's commanded and called us to do um, he speaks back into that mm-hmm. and that's not a guarantee because he blesses in a variety of ways it's not always monetary and affecting the bottom line but there is a precedent that we can see that's been set historically that when businesses are ethically uh, correct and when they are uh, caring of their people that is profitable and and it's not just profitable in business it's profitable in in spiritual influence and moral influence and conduct and in a variety of ways Um, as we go into schools and, and build those relationships and mentor children as we go into allied drive and and start to build relationships and enjoy people, we begin to influence. So at some point in time, people are going to have a problem and they're going to go to the people that cared for them. They're going to go to the people that love them. In any crisis I've ever seen, you don't go to, pro- to protocol first, you go to your Rolodex and you go to the people that you trust. And when those people respond, those are the people that have influence several days later is when protocol rolls in. Uh, if it's a crisis, it takes salvation army. It takes others time to mobilize because they're huge entities. The church is always instant because we're everywhere. And so the more that we can recognize that we're not just about inside this building, but we're, we live in this community. Therefore we, we care for this community and we, um, we are Christ to this community. Um, when stuff happens, we're the first call. And it's interesting that people in the public sector, when they get in trouble, always turn to the church. The tragedy is when the church doesn't turn back and and we give them a deaf ear. And so we've got to find creative ways to say yes to... Um, the call for from community to how do we how do we partner with you? Mm-hmm. How do we gain the goodness that you represent and we do that um, we gain trust by becoming involved and by being known by, being seen um, not by you know if God calls you to preach on a soapbox on the corner, then you better be obedient, mm-hmm. but for the rest ninety nine percent of us um, we carry our faith daily, and our actions are uh, Christ-like at work, at school, in the, in the marketplace, neighborhoods, and just in the normal rhythms of life. We we make God look good.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that I've seen is you you try to get out of the building just as a as a ministry person. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ministry, like people are just in the building the whole time. They're just at their desks. Typing things, sending emails, doing whatevers. And you're you're trying to like get out into marketplace ministry, and being with those people and helping them, getting into the capital and interacting with those folks and um, getting down to Allied and, and talking with the school principal and supporting Lloyd and what he's been doing and reading with those students and, and creating these opportunities where we don't necessarily have to create this high point ministry of blah, 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 blah. But where we can like deploy people, where people can scatter out into the community and be salt and light, if in fact they've become real disciples, Mm -hmm. um, then they make Jesus look great. But to the extent to which we're anemic disciples, and if we go out, then you know then it's kind of it can be unhelpful. Mm -hmm. But I think High Point has a lot of really great people. We do, and so I think seeing us scatter out there could have a really great have a really great impact.
3: Mm-hmm. And one of the things I see is my job here at High Point is to help create those pathways that other people can walk down, um, just to open doors mm-hmm. and then get out of the way so people who are more gifted in that area can go in and build the relationships and, and really um, participate in the joy of serving and coming alongside in a manner that God's called them to. Mm-hmm.
1: you have any more questions for him?
0: Off of that, I guess the one question that came to mind was, um, as the hope would be that people would come to you to go through the doors that then you've put into place or that you at least have known how to open, um, what do you think will be the biggest hurdle for people, now that you've been here almost a year, um, people at High Point to to come to you in the first place or to... um, Yeah, to want to connect with you, to have you help them.
3: It takes a year to really get to know the pulse of the church Mm -hmm. and and I feel like I'm coming into that. Um, So it's not them coming to me, it's how do I go into the various ministries and go to them Mm -hmm. Uh, how do I influence um, this type of thinking across the board? It's not about them seeking out me. It's about me helping structure, equip them to to do that. Um, so, Mike, some of
1: the churches you've worked in um, and the traditions you've worked in have very strong senior pastor and pastoral leadership. Mm-hmm. And if there's an elder board or a deacon board or whatever, they tend to be... They advise, but they pretty much let the pastor do what he needs to do. Um, and that's the context you've been from. So we have a much more, you know, the kind of, you've been in the elder meetings, so you know this. Like, mm-hmm. we have a much more active elder board. They have a lot stronger <laughs> opinions. They assert themselves much more than that. I don't just lead the church however I darn well please. Um, so that's the context here. So how do you, how have you dealt with that trans transition, that kind of difference?
0: I'm sure it's a bit of a culture shock.
3: Well, I said I never pastor a church that was congregationally led and, and I'm not Nick is but one of the things I've really enjoyed about High Point is the healthiness of the elder board um, what I found is there's a lot of ownership by them that this really remains God's place in God's church um I really enjoy the fact that the majority of ministries are not pastorally led, that they're congregationally led because it, the church members have got a lot of skin in the game. And so there is ownership. There's pride in ownership. Uh, they really want to be a part of what God's doing. And and that's really fun to be a part of. And it's, it's fun to be able to facilitate that and to... Um, build the structures that as we grow structure won't get in the way, but structure can continue to develop in a way that um, gives room for more people to participate in ministry and in the ownership of ministry and celebrate the things that they're doing. Mm -hmm. So it's been a pleasant surprise. Sweet.
1: Well, I mean, I think we've covered a a good number of things. For those of you who hear this, um, hopefully you'll hear this before um, Mike does whatever candidate meetings we're going to do. There'll be at least one where he'll talk probably a little bit about his theology of pastoral ministry and what an executive pastor is and allow for a question and answer. But hopefully this has been informative for you about him and his philosophy of ministry and his background and what he's done. And you can start to make a a decision and begin to pray about a decision of uh, supporting him or not supporting him (laughs) to be uh, uh, in the pastoral role here at High Point. So I think we'll cut it off there, and we'll talk to you guys next time, and hopefully you'll subscribe to the podcast and be able to hear the ones that follow us. God bless you.